Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival uh, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, I guess uh, for the uh, blog version of the sermon last week, Trey titled it, I believe it was Trey, uh, Zombies and Laxatives. So to, uh, to continue the trend, we'll call this one, Parents Just Don't Understand. Uh, I guess, sadly, it is time for us to transition uh, away from Christmas, but I figured I'd give it uh, one last week back in Luke, dealing with this interesting episode of 12-year-old Jesus at the temple. And I love this story because it gets into some of the nittiest and grittiest parts of the beautiful paradox that is the Incarnation. So it's a great wrap-up for Christmas. And it's one of the few pictures that we have as Jesus that is not of Jesus as a baby or as a full-grown adult. And uh, that is a pretty phenomenal setup, in my opinion, for the arc of Luke-Acts. I mean, think about it. Each of the Gospels opens in a way that's totally characteristically its own. So, like, Mark's like an action flick. You know, chapter one. Imagine the screen's dark, and there's a citation from Isaiah that slowly fades in. And then we meet John the Baptist in verse 4. We've met grown-up Jesus by verse 9. And by the end of that first chapter in Mark, Jesus is baptized, tested, announces the good news, calls the disciples, casts out demons, and does a bunch of healings. I mean, right off the bat. Matthew begins with that long genealogy. Chapter 2, birth in Magi, and we looked at last week. And we don't even meet John the Baptist till chapter 3. And then John is like, I don't know, so typically John, a long theological reflection that begins before the beginning of time, uh, followed by, uh, I don't know what, John the Baptist and the calling of the disciples. But Luke likes to tell a detailed story. And so he spends like two chapters on the lead up that we've looked at over the last few weeks of Advent with the beautiful songs. And as you recall, last uh, time we did Luke, we did the presentation in the temple. It's notable that, for all the stuff we've looked at, uh, there's been some talk of the travails of baby Jesus, a a tiny bit about his commute between Egypt and Israel and Matthew and the Magi in last week. But other than that, there's not a lot of references to kid Jesus. This is really only the one detailed account of Jesus as a kid in the Gospels. And the passage that we're looking at today uh, is, you know, unique in that regard. There are lots of apocryphal sources outside the canon of the four Gospels that spend a lot of time looking at Jesus' childhood. It's like, I don't know, ancient fan fiction, I guess. So there's the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Pseudo-Matthew, 
Arabic infancy gospel. There's even an Irish versified narrative written in 700 AD, all of which, you know, folks who like apocryphal sources will read. And in a number of them, Kid Jesus performs a lot of miracles, but is also someone you definitely don't want to mess with. So the, the story that is in most of these is that Jesus is gathering water on the Sabbath. And he makes the water clear and clean miraculously. And then a little kid, uh, in most of the, uh, these apocryphal stories, is identified as the son of Annas the scribe, so he's a kid of a Pharisee, but was pouring out all the water that Jesus collected. Because, you know, it was the Sabbath, so I guess he's, you know, you're not supposed to do this, pouring it out. And so Jesus curses him and commands him to wither like a tree. And Mary and Joseph have to have this awkward conversation with the parents who carry their dead kid to them for an explanation. So Jesus takes the water and uses it to make 12 clay sparrows and then breathes life into them instead of the boy. And so the sparrows fly away in a fairly harsh metaphor for the old and new Israel. So you have the dead kid of a, of a scribe on one side replaced by the 12 new tribes of Israel. There's a lot of other weird details too. So the Arabic infancy gospel when Jesus is seven, none of the other kids in town will play with him because all the other parents say he's a wizard. Child Jesus also meets Zacchaeus in one of these, and he's kind of a brat to him. So Joseph brings Jesus to Zacchaeus. It says, Joseph led him to a certain teacher named Zacchaeus, and he said, take this child, teach him letters. And then when Jesus heard this, he laughs at his father and Zacchaeus. You say what things you know, but I understand more things than you for uh, before the ages I am. Behold, you do not believe me now, but when you see my cross, then you will believe that I speak the truth. So, you know, kid Jesus is, is also very, uh, apparently very useful to have around. He has dominion over nature, so instead of climbing trees, he simply commands them to bend down and pick him up. There's a story that's told in a couple of these that Joseph is making a bed and he has two pieces of wood of unequal length and kid Jesus takes the shorter piece and magically stretches it to make it the same length. There's stories about him planting crops with Joseph where Joseph is kind of planting uh, grains of corn and Jesus puts one in and then corn sprouts up from the whole field. You can see, I think, why these attempts to talk about the power of kid Jesus don't make it into the canon. I mean, I know, I'm sure the good Lord had some say in that through divine inspiration of the scripture, but you know, it's kind of tough to have a childhood narrative built around a kid who will kill another kid for messing with his water. The larger question for me is why the four Gospels don't spend more time dwelling on Jesus as a child. And I don't really know the answer to that, except to say that the focus of the Gospels, when it comes to Jesus' background, is usually to demonstrate that he's fulfilling prophecy or that he's the new Israel. And other than that, the Gospels are largely focused on identifying Jesus' ministry and mission and person as all tied up in one. So there is this one place in the Luke where we see uh, kid Jesus. And uh, it's, uh, it's really kind of beautiful how it fits in the narrative of Luke. I almost regret doing the Magi last week, even though you kind of have to. Because if you recall, the section that immediately precedes the gospel for today happens where? In the temple. It's the presentation to Simeon uh, and Anna. And, you know, Simeon takes the baby into his arms and sings a song, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and, you know, he's dismissed from the temple in one way or the other, now able to die. And Anna, who we don't hear from, 
does what a prophetess does and goes out and tells everyone who will listen. So verse 40 concludes that episode by saying that after Jesus and Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth, the child grew and became strong and was filled with the wisdom and grace of God was on him. And then 12 years pass. And it's kind of beautiful for the arc of Luke Acts that the very next time we see Jesus, he's in the temple again. So the temple's kind of the hinge to the story here. Moves to the temple, you know, birth moves to the temple, and then we're back to the temple and moving outward in Jesus' public ministry. And the remainder of that gospel, it should go without saying, is about Jesus kind of working his way back to Jerusalem. And that's one way you could sum up the gospel of Luke, weirdly enough, that it's about Jesus going to the temple, through the temple, and then beyond the temple. It sums up the life of Jesus for Luke, and more importantly, if you consider it in the arc of Luke Acts, it's like kind of the whole story of salvation history. So let's dig in on this text. Mary and Jesus are traveling to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, so we know they're devout Jews, and their journey would have been difficult. Uh, They know it's kind of their obligation to worship in Jerusalem at the Passover. One of the most interesting things about this episode, though, is it it, it does present Joseph and and Mary is devout, but there is that whole element of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to it. That's right, parents just don't understand. Three times in this passage, the author of Luke will say that they don't know. Use the negative particle in Greek in front of three different kinds of knowledge. So verse 43, after the festival was over, while parents returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. That's the first of the three. Of course, this is a little bit more excusable than we'd think in the modern world, although who hasn't kind of left a kid somewhere? Am I right, Annabeth? The journey to Jerusalem was real dangerous. And so you'd likely have uh, people traveling with you, like from your village or from your extended family. You'd go in a big group because lots of folks were traveling and there were robbers out on the road and etc. So you'd go with a ton of different people, like I said, your family and village and they're traveling likely with a gaggle of people who would have shared child-watching duties. So we all know what that's like, too. Who's got the kid? So 44 and 45, thinking they were, he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Don't notice for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends who they traveled with. 45 said when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, I don't think this is just story set up. The scripture is making a point here. Why are Mary and Joseph in Jerusalem? They're in Jerusalem for the holiday. But the gospel also kind of wants to make the point that Jesus is in Jerusalem for that purpose, but for a larger purpose. You know, it's going to, and it'll eventually make the case that he's kind of doing the task of completing the Passover. It's trying to say that Jesus belongs in Jerusalem and that belonging is at the core of his identity. In fact, it's even more robust thread than his commitment to his earthly family. I mean, you know, I guess Jesus could have told them, hey, mom and dad, you want to stay around for a while? I'm sure they had to get back. And as we find out later, Jesus is, you know, obedient to Joseph and Mary, but he's also obedient to his father. And the narrative is kind of set up here that Jesus is, even at the young age of 12, committing to a deeper obedience to his father that defines his identity, that is the new Israel and the new temple. Look at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. I, you know, those three days, I think, are an interesting element of, a, you know, what does Deadpool call it? A steaming pile of foreshadowing or whatever. The three days, they'll rebuild the temple, etc. But more than that, 
it's awfully significant that Jesus is 12 here. And for more than just the like, gosh, that kid is sharp factor. Why does it matter that he's 12? Well, he's not come of age yet. No bar mitzvah yet. He's not 13. He's not a full-fledged member of the community. He has not been ascribed status under the law of being responsible for his own actions. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. He has not been conferred the right to read or discuss the Torah, nor to lead prayer. And the point is that the Jesus doesn't need the identity of being a son of the commandment conferred on him. He is the principle and the person that makes it possible that each one of us can become sons and daughters of not only the commandment, but of God. But there's more to this than even that. There's that number 12 signifying completeness. I guess this episode could happen at 10 or 11, but 12 demonstrates that Jesus is complete prior even to any formal conferral of ritual or religious status. The other thing that's kind of great about 12 is it's a subtle poke at Caesar Augustus, which I love. He had declared himself God. You remember that whole kind of emperor cult thing? And as proof of his divine status, there were all kinds of stories about the amazing things that Augustus did when he was 12. So, for example, Augustus lost his father at four. He had to take on a bunch of early responsibilities at an, responsibilities at an early age. He wrote when he was 12 the funeral oration for his grandmother because his mother was so stricken with grief. And the Romans used to love to tell this story about Augustus standing up at 12 and just enrapturing the crowd, having every eye drilled in on him and writing this beautiful funeral oration. And Roman propaganda later on would say, if you want to know how we know that this guy is not only the emperor, but the god king, they'd talk all the time about what he did at 12. So Jesus' performance here in rapturing the crowd is a testament to his identity, it's to his person, to his status as the new temple, the new Israel, and as always in Luke, it is a subtle knock on the Roman emperor cult, which I love. But Mary and Joseph don't get it. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, I've got, I've got some sympathy for Mary. I mean, you know, wouldn't you be kind of freaked out too? But it's interesting that Mary makes it immediately about herself as any parent would, I I, I guess. But for what it's worth, the Greek here literally is, why have you done this to us? She's curious about, you know, why Jesus has decided to mistreat them is, you know, the core question for him or for her. And 12-year-old Jesus does what adult Jesus will do all the time in the parables. He senses the kind of internal narrative of the person that he's talking to, and he's going to change the conversation to get to the real point. So verse 49. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, first off, Jesus asks a bigger question than the one Mary poses. You know, it's not about what I've done to you. Or Jesus, I guess, could have said, why didn't you come to the temple? But what does he say? Why were you searching for me? Now, any parent, that's easy. I was searching for you because you were lost. But Jesus' implied point is that He was not lost. He was home. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. Did you not know, parents don't understand, number two, that I had to be in my father's house? But the gospel tells us they did not understand. That's the the third parents don't understand. The not know, not understand words are really interesting when you put them together. So the first one at the very beginning that they didn't know where Jesus was was that they did not gnosko is the Greek word. It's like that word we've talked about, like konoser. It's like 
experience or have firsthand knowledge of something. So they don't experience or have firsthand knowledge of where Jesus is. The second don't know is Ido. And that is like, did you not see? Did you not, you know, it's very kind of eye-heavy metaphor that, you know, did you not kind of perceive? And the third one they did not understand is tsunami, which means they didn't put it together. Now that's the point to me, I think. Mary and Joseph... You know, Jesus stands in for Israel and stands in for the temple. That's a big part of the reason why that's the kind of hinge in Luke Acts. But it seems to me that there's a sense that Mary and Joseph also stand in for Israel in some sense here too, don't they? They do not experience, they do not see, and they do not put together the full identity of their son. If they did, they would see that he was the son of God. That he was not lost by being in his father's house, that he was exactly where he needed to be. And that he, even at 12, was not subject to authority, but that he is, by his nature, as the divine logos, the source of all authority. But I think this is one of the most perfect expressions of the identity of Jesus. An identity, that's why I say it gets into the nitty-gritty of the incarnation so much, that is rooted in all these paradoxes. God and human at the same time. God and simultaneously obedient to the Father. Look at verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. As a human, Jesus grows. Right? He obeys his parents. He obeys the will and work of both of his fathers. As God, he is the source of all authority and the object of our obedience. As the the incarnation of the omnipotent, omniscient, infinitely loving God, he shouldn't really have more wisdom to obtain or stature to achieve or even any way of currying more favor with the infinitely loving God. But the beauty of this story and the tensions that it works through and the beauty of the gospel and, in fact, the beauty of the incarnation, which is why this is a great wrap-up for Christmas, is that God accommodates to us so that we can understand so that we can know God, so that we can see, so that we can understand, so that we can experience, and so we can put it all together. The God of the Incarnation, Jesus Christ in the Gospel, is a God that accommodates to us so that we can come to know God. God experiences and sees and puts it together for us when we cannot, and paradoxically, God does it so that we can come to experience, to see to put it together so that we can understand. And in that is the beauty and grace of the incarnation writ large. Amen. Questions or talk?